Yellow Podcast Village. Welcome to the award-winning colorblind race across generations. The safe place and space to talk about race openly and honestly, even when it's uncomfortable. I'm your host, Vanessa Eccles, along with super producer, Ashley Long. Hello, Ashley. Hello, hello. Happy New Year, Podcast Village. Yes, this is our first podcast of 2022, and um, we have not run out of topics yet because the world and America just keep giving us stuff to talk about. Yeah. We're talking about one of those wild Black situations. You know, it's like fill in the blank, shopping while Black, walking while Black, sleeping while Black, studying while Black. In this episode, we're talking about banking while Black. Journalist Eric Rasmussen from television station KSTP in Minneapolis joins us to talk about his investigation of a banking while Black case where there was some action taken, a legal settlement. Also joining us, Nikema Levy-Armstrong, a civil rights attorney, activist, and founder of the Racial Justice Network. Let's listen. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Nikema, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. So Eric, let's start with you to give our listeners some background on what happened with this case of banking while Black. Yes, uh, you know, really the uh, that hashtag had been around, but the, the case we looked at, uh, we received information about this uh, 23-year-old man, Joe Morrow, uh, worked at a fairly popular or well-known grocery distributor just outside the Twin Cities, um, and had a paycheck, and kind of on his way home, says he, he stopped at a U.S. bank branch in Columbia Heights, and that's just uh, another one of the sort of suburbs close to Minneapolis and St. Paul. And in a very short amount of actual time from him walking in the bank where he had an account to cash his check, uh, he described to us a series of events where uh, there was a delay. And then the manager came out. He says uh, in front of everyone, the manager accused him of fraud and trying to pass a fake check um, and even asked him to leave. And and Joe said he obviously disputed that and said, I want you to cash my check. Uh, at that point, the manager called Columbia Heights police, and this happened in a matter of minutes. And when police arrived, um, they they came and they found Joe Morrow in the bank manager's office. Uh, as it, at some point, uh, Joe Morrow was put in handcuffs. He was detained um, until ultimately the 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 important call to his employer was made, and it was determined, of course, the check was real, and he was sent on his way. But really, what what made this case stand out is that um, we were able to get body camera video of this. So this shifted from a classic he said, he said story, and it depends who you want to believe, to now the majority of the incident is captured on camera that we can see. Um, and what that revealed uh, was it supported Joe's story to a great extent. It showed him sitting calmly. Um, and, and the incident that, that sparked his uh, being put in handcuffs was, was him standing up when he was told to, to move into another office. Uh, so that, that obviously uh, gained a lot of attention and made people pretty upset. When did this happen? This happened in October of 2020. And the timeline is important. Obviously, we're talking five months after the police killing 
of George Floyd, uh, which mattered to the nation, but certainly to us here in the Twin Cities. And then also, this was only brought to our attention uh, just a little less than a year after this happened. Uh, and where that's important is uh, Morrow's lawyers told us they had tried without seeking publicity to resolve this with the bank, to get some sort of settlement to, to compensate him for what happened and also get an explanation. So what finally prompted them to do something? Well, I don't try to uh, lay out causation, Vanessa, but I can tell you what the timeline is. A year had passed. Uh, they had gotten nowhere despite multiple letters to the bank. Uh, they had not filed a lawsuit yet, but they, they declared their intent to do so and nothing had happened. After we interviewed Joe Morrow in very short amount of time, time, I called the bank, talked to their communications people, told them we planned to report something. And a couple weeks after that, they, they reached an undisclosed settlement. As they say, what a co-inky-dink. Right. So let's be clear. He had an account at the bank. Right. He had a legitimate check from the place where he worked. Yes. And we're going to send a, a we'll post a link to the video so people can see his demeanor because that played a great part in what the police were saying. You don't see him being belligerent. I mean, he's, I've seen the video, he's kind of laid back and like, what's going on kind of thing. So all that plays into this. Right, and, and you know, we talked about not letting to do the he said, she said, but the, the other piece of information we had to rely on was the police report. And the, the police report um, stated that, uh, that that's why they were called there. He was accused of passing a fraudulent check. And as far as him being detained, they said he flexed at the manager in a threatening manner. Um, and again, what the video shows is him standing up clearly frustrated. Uh, but there's a, a great deal of dispute over, over whether that amounted to, you know, threatening someone. So, Nikema, let's bring you into this discussion. How did you find out about this case? I found out about this case initially from someone in the community who reached out and let me know that there was a young black man who had experienced discrimination. I was able to have a conversation with him about the circumstances. And at the time he was very frustrated because he felt as if he had been treated in a discriminatory manner and that he had not received justice. He had been treated like a criminal. And um, I empathize with him when I spoke to him um, about his case. We talked about the circumstances. You know, he, you know, although I am a civil rights attorney, he was already represented by counsel. And so um, I just had that opportunity to kind of hear him out and empathize with him. And then um, Eric ran his story. And from that point in time, uh, my, so I, I'm the founder of a grassroots organization called the Racial Justice Network. After the story aired, we issued a press release essentially calling out US Bank for their uh, mishandling of the situation and their discriminatory treatment of a hardworking young black man. And we contextualized the situation uh, with regard to what happened to George Floyd. It's not lost on our community the fact that George Floyd was ultimately killed because local store owners in Minneapolis called the police over him having an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. 
And something that simple led to an overreaction on the part of the police where they drew guns on George Floyd. And then ultimately the world witness, Derek Chauvin, pressing his knee into George Floyd's neck for almost 10 minutes. Um, and in collaboration with three additional officers who are right now on trial in federal court. And so thinking about the horrific nature of that incident over an alleged $20 bill was very triggering um, for me as a black woman and for many in our community. And when I saw Eric's story and I saw the body camera footage of the incident, I was outraged. Um, you know, US Bank is often seen as a pillar in our community. Our uh, football stadium is named after US Bank. They talk a lot about diversity and equity uh, and racial justice. And they talked about that after George Floyd was killed. And then here we have hypocrisy, at least that's the way that our group felt when we saw the way that Joe Morrow uh, was treated in the place uh, where George Floyd was actually killed. And Eric, what was the reaction when, as journalists, you talked to the police to get their side of what happened here? What did they say? Right. Well, in, in this case, obviously, we had to reach out, uh, obviously, to U.S. Bank and police. Um, and and the, the response from police, and, and I think it's important to make the distinction here, um, this story has garnered a lot of outrage, and, and a lot of folks have used their voices, like Nakima has. Um, there is what police said in that body camera video that upset people, but also the reminder is they would have never been there but for the bank manager picking up the phone and calling police. So our first order of business was to reach out to the bank, ask for an interview with the bank manager, um, the CEO. We asked for anybody who U.S. Bank wanted to give us. And the response is, is really important here as well, because the first thing I got was some background information. And what we heard was, Eric, hold on, we, we don't, U.S. Bank typically doesn't call police for a suspected fraudulent check. What I had learned on background was that U.S. Bank calls when there's a threat to the, the customers or the employees. So, you, you know, you, you can connect the dots there. They're suggesting this man's a threat somehow. Then as we got closer to our story airing, they declined interview requests. But they said in their statement um, that we dispute the facts as they're being portrayed to you. And then in a follow-up statement said, "Our this is U.S. Bank, saying its own internal review of the incident found the customer's race had nothing to do with the treatment he received. And, and after we, we ran our story, we had done a follow-up story, Nakima's organization um, took the stance they did. It was a matter of three days later that U.S. Bank's CEO issued an apology to the community and really kind of an about face from that initial statement. Uh, the CEO, Andy Ciceri, said he accepted full responsibility, said they need to do better, said they would focus on training. All the things I got to tell you, we kind of thought we'd hear in the first statement, uh, but we didn't. Um, the response from police was they also reviewed the situation. Uh, the chief of police said the officers acted admirably and conducted themselves professionally. And that was the response. Yes we've gotten so far. And so they haven't changed. We haven't, we haven't, we, we did reach out additionally and, and they've declined to comment. And when the bank officials made that statement about their internal review, mm -hmm. I 
suppose they told you the makeup of the people who made that review, what those people look like. No, they didn't, Vanessa. Uh, and also, what's it, it raises the question, and, and part of the reason we're all even sitting here talking about this today, um, unless you've got some um, new technology to search into the brain and heart of a person and their subconscious, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how you reach that conclusion, but I can just report what they tell me, that that was their initial finding. They clearly don't seem to feel that way now based on the CEO statement. And so, Nikema, you probably aren't surprised by any of this, any of the fallout, what happened initially. None of this probably surprises you, I'm guessing. No, we have said for years that Minnesota is the Jim Crow North. And people did not believe us. Many people didn't even think Black folks lived in Minnesota until the killing of George Floyd. Although we've been out in the streets for a very long time, demonstrating, also going into the halls of power, um, demanding justice, demanding accountability, demanding transparency in terms of how these systems function to perpetuate injustices and racial inequality. And so in this particular situation, seeing the bank do what we would call um, Minnesota nice, where you know they're they're taking what looks like a soft approach and oh we were just doing our jobs and this unfortunate incident happened but we're essentially closing the door on any further accountability and that is what we typically hear when there has been uh, discriminatory treatment of black folks uh, in the Twin Cities it was just disheartening though to see the anguish that Joe Murrow experienced the fact that this incident still has an impact on him today, he felt dehumanized and criminalized while simply trying to cash his check, which was unacceptable. And so after we put our statement out, uh, the next day was when um, US Bank backpedaled, uh, when the CEO, as Eric said, issued a different statement in response, accepting responsibility I also received a phone call from the CEO, um, as well as the vice president. The vice president is a black man, um, Greg Cunningham. And so we had a very long conversation about this particular incident and the larger issues at play with regard to US Bank um, publicly claiming that they focus on equity and diversity and inclusion, which is on their website. It's what they've talked about. Um, but then seeing the dehumanizing treatment of a black man who's just trying to cash a check that he earned and how there is a disconnect. And so in our statement, we actually issued several demands to U.S. Bank, you know, regarding um, looking at their training, making sure that there is racial sensitivity training, making sure there's accountability, particularly for that bank manager. Um, and he was actually removed from that branch. They would not give additional information about whether he is still employed by U.S. Bank. But from my understanding, there is now an investigation that's being taken more seriously. And, and people, so after we put the statement out, we sent it to media outlets um, and we posted it on Facebook as well. And some of my Facebook friends actually went into the bank. People called the bank. Uh, they lodged complaints, they sent emails, they showed up at the bank. 
And that's when they found that that manager was not there and that manager had been replaced temporarily by an African-American person uh, from a predominantly black community. So Eric, this case also was a little bit different in that there was actually a legal settlement in the case, is that correct? Right, and it, it's, it's not that uncommon. You know, um, I, I certainly don't need to tell any of you or probably many of your, your listeners who are black that uh, there are stories like this all the time everywhere. Uh, it is not new, and we're certainly not holding it out as that. But there's not a lot of data on it. And the other thing there's not a lot of are people's firsthand accounts. And one of those reasons is uh, either the person doesn't report it at all and they just chalk it up to life, or uh, these settlements happen. And if it weren't for the, the timing of things, you could have never heard Joe Morrow's story. Uh, because after they settled, his lawyer um, made it clear to us that they, as uh, to the terms of the settlement, couldn't say another word to me, not a follow-up, not a, we need to get a little extra video of you walking around. We got nothing. The, the, the information pipeline was cut off as soon as that settlement, according to his lawyers, was, was complete. So if it were not for us talking to him beforehand, and I'll tell you, getting the, the body camera video at the gun, they were imminently about to settle when Joe Morrow agreed to release that to us. Because in Minnesota, um, the parties in the video have to consent to its release, which is why if you see, if you see the story, the bank manager is blurred out. We didn't do that. Uh, by law, police had to blur him out because the bank manager didn't consent. There are no details about the settlement itself. No, none. Not that have been made public, no. And Nikimi, you talked about this a little bit. What does this say in terms of the larger picture, particularly with all of these companies after the summer of George, after George Floyd, you know, all these companies coming out with statements saying we support diversity and equity and inclusion, Black Lives Matter, blah, blah, blah. Getting down to the nitty gritty, though, there wasn't much follow up for businesses. Right, absolutely. It seemed as if it was business as usual uh, at the point that Joe Murrow went into the bank. And the fact that the folks in the bank who were running the bank didn't make the connection between what happened to George Floyd and the fact that they chose to call the police on a young black man, knowing the dangers that exist when you have aggressive police officers who show up. Um, police officers who are, for example, known for using excessive force or who have anti-Blackness in their hearts. And the way that Joe Murrow was treated, although the Columbia Heights Police Department affirmed the officer's conduct, from my perspective, they never would have talked to a white man in the way that they talked to Joe Murrow. They talked to him almost like he was a boy that they were trying to keep in line and the fact that they didn't focus on the fact that he was humiliated in front of other customers in the bank and placed in, I believe, pink handcuffs um, for no reason whatsoever, without even a real investigation into the bank manager's claims that it was um, a, a fraudulent check. The bank manager actually lied to Joe Murrow and claimed that they had reviewed the check and found it to be fake. That wasn't true. He just assumed that it was fake. And then he said, you people stay coming in here. 
cash and fake checks. So he made that comment to Joe Murrow. And then while Joe Murrow was calmly sitting in his office and um, the police officer showed up, he told the police officer to take Joe Murrow out of his office because he didn't want him to steal anything. So I don't see how U.S. Bank could review the um, incident, had the bank uh, footage that they may have had outside of the body camera footage and come to the conclusion that the actions of the bank and the police officers were justified in that situation. So often these kinds of um, circumstances happen where uh, there is a bias at work, where sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's words that are spoken and it, it results in dehumanization, criminalization, and in the case of George Floyd, death. And that could have very easily happened here if a different police officer would have shown up. Eric, when you talked to him, did he give you any indication of a simple phone call? Seems like it could settle this. Just call the company and say, hey, does this guy work there? And did you cut him a check today? Right, that, that phone call was critical. And he said, he said as much. And uh, it, it shouldn't be lost that Joe Morrow again had an account um, said he had identification. It wasn't one of those classic ones where somebody comes in, not a customer with no ID and wants you to cash a $10,000 check. This was not that. Um, and then I'll tell you, when I first got the body camera video, we'd already interviewed Joe Morrow. So I'm starting with what he's told me and trying to verify what he's told me. And one of those jaw hitting the floor moments uh, was after Joe Morrow had been handcuffed and taken into a separate office, one of the police officers, the sergeant, sits down with the bank manager. Now, remember, the bank manager's blurred and muted. So I'm watching the video thinking, well, I'm not going to get anything out of this. But you can still hear the sergeant. And the sergeant says, okay, who do we need to call? Right then and there, supporting Joe Morrow's contention that nobody made a call yet. And, and contradicting the manager's statement to Joe that he had already called. Um, and then, then the audio obviously drops out. The bank manager is doing what he has to do. And then you hear the, the, the officer say, so, so it's, it's real. The check number is real. So that little shred of body camera video just further um, highlighted uh, what, why so many people are, are frustrated with this case. And there was no indication of why he thought the check was fraudulent. Well, there, 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 it was a, a black man trying to cash a check. To be fair, in the in the police report, the police um, relayed that the bank manager stated they had received a number of fraudulent checks using the UNFI logo. That's Joe Morrow's employer. So that was sort of the basis for the initial suspicion. Again, according to the bank, according to the police report. Uh, so. Look, it's not my job to, to try to make guesses or suggest anything. I just report what's in front of me. But they say that was the original reason for it. But what didn't happen was that next step, the call to the bank. You tell the person, hey, hold on a second. We'll be right back. we got to check something. Um, and and the, those we've spoken to who are experts in banking, um, in implicit bias training, um, and, and the study of, of uh, discriminatory practices at banks say exactly that that the next step would have been to be open and uh, upfront with him saying, hey, we've had some 
you know, fraudulent checks. Give us a second. We just need to take this extra step. And it came, doesn't that speak to the issue of how differently he was treated as a young black man? Absolutely. This call is just, hey, just hold on just a second. We'll get right to this. Call the company and you can settle this in a matter of 30 seconds. Absolutely. And there's even a question as to whether if Joe had been a, a young white man and he uh, brought forward a check like that, would he have been profiled? Would they have even thought that the check was fraudulent? Right. And that's an anecdote that the bank teller gave in order to justify his behavior. But we haven't seen any data that shows how many so-called uh, fake checks that they've received uh, with that grocery store's logo on it. And, and let's think about the fact that it took a white male newscaster to actually dig into the story and not just sweep Joe's concerns under the rug for this to be brought to light. That rarely happens in the Twin Cities within our media community. So I wanna commend Eric for listening to the story, for interviewing Joe, uh, humanizing him in front of a, a very wide, a broad audience, as well as getting the body camera footage and bringing this to light. That was very unusual compared to what we normally experience here. So thus far, there's no proof that the bank had received fraudulent checks from the company where Joe worked. That's just what they said, correct? And right. And you know, we we reference it in our reporting because it's in the police report. Uh, that doesn't make it gospel, but it is documented by police. We've obviously repeatedly, uh, even since our story aired, asked U.S. Bank to sit down with us, provide more information. I mean, my goodness, even maybe give us your video uh, from, from the bank if it's going to change the conversation at all. We would, I mean, we have to report what, what we can prove. Uh, and and that, that would go a long way. I, I'm not naive enough to think that they would just hand that over to us. Uh, so obviously that hasn't happened. But those are the things we tried to go through and verify. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate your words, Nikima. Um, the, the other thing, though, is, you know, uh, we're as a reporter, we're just skeptical. I'm skeptical of everybody and everything all the time, maybe to a fault. So when I sat down with Joe Morrow initially, nice guy, um, seemed to be speaking from the heart. I had no reason to doubt him, but I have to try to verify it. Um, and I think where this story again turned a corner is, um, as I watched the body camera video and went back to my interview with him, Joe hadn't seen the body camera video. He's talking to me almost a year after this happened. I will tell you, Vanessa, he spoke almost verbatim to match what happened in the video. It was really incredible that his recall of what happened was so accurate. And that's when I was able to verify, he said X, and I looked at it in the video, and those things matched. Obviously, that speaks to his credibility in the story. But also his lingering trauma. To yeah. be able to remember at that level of depth what happened a year earlier shows that that is still impacting him. His consciousness, I mean, he could be triggered walking into any bank based on what he has experienced. And that's something we don't talk about enough is how these issues affect people who are dehumanized and who are humiliated. I mean, he went to the bank to cash a check 
He has a job. He has an account at that bank. And he was not treated like a bank customer expects to be treated. And he was handcuffed. That has to do something to you. Absolutely. And in speaking with Joe, it has impacted him. I'm not sure what the exact terms of the settlement were in that situation, but I'm sure he should have received much more than uh, what he did receive from U.S. Bank. And Eric, without that body cam video, how do you think this would have turned out? I feel like I have a pretty good idea. We still would have reported the story. Uh, it would have been it wouldn't have been 10 minutes long like we did and filled up our whole first part of the newscast that night. Uh, it would have been much shorter. Maybe it would have gotten some attention, but there's no way it would have gotten the, the national and international attention it received. Uh, and, and this is not us patting ourselves on the back. This is just what it is. I mean, the video on our YouTube page is almost a million views. Um, I, I, it's the most response to any story I've done in, in 23 and I think it all comes back to that video. And it, it maybe it's it's a commentary on the age we live in, you know, video or it didn't happen. Um, but we've seen other reporting of banking while black and uh, through no fault of the reporters or the people this happened to. There just hasn't been a lot of video. Uh, there was a case out of Detroit uh, a year earlier where a man came in to cash a check that he got from a discrimination case against his employer and had the, the police called on him. Uh, we talked to a man in San Diego who went to cash an insurance check and they said they called the police and he got out of there. And the response he got after he complained was, well, we didn't really call the police. We just said we were because we needed you to leave. I mean, those stories, sadly, are a dime a dozen. They're out there all the time. I mean, just talk to anybody. Uh, but what made this stand out again is, is the fact that there was just this video that that is just so hard, I mean, hard for me to watch, far be it for me to put myself, myself in the shoes of a Black person and imagine how hard it is for anybody who's experienced that to watch. And so, Nakima, what's the next step here? Well, I think that the next step is for U.S. Bank to make good on its promises to overhaul its training. Uh, they apparently do require racial sensitivity training of their employees, but what the CEO and the vice president revealed is that this showed them that there are gaps within their system. And so they have made a promise to overhaul their training. I also asked them to specifically look at how these investigations happen, because if Eric had not reviewed this information and brought it forward, it would have just been business as usual, rubber stamping the status quo, which was bias and discrimination. And so uh, that was another point that we brought up. And then I've had a larger conversation with the vice president about what does this incident say about the inequitable treatment of Black folks when they are banking, when they are applying for home loans, when they're applying for jobs at U.S. Bank? Does the discrimination extend into those other areas? And I would posit that it does. And so what does that mean as far as looking at your practices from top to bottom to try to eradicate discrimination and inequity in terms of how you do business? And they are doing some things, but they need to step up their game and take it to the next level. And that's one of the things that they've acknowledged. Well, this is a perfect example of 
the importance of that video showing that, you know, oh, you're just making this stuff up or it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And also the fact of how important good reporting is, good investigative journalism is. So um, Eric, I commend you on that. Nikima, thank you for what you're doing. I know, you know, you're doing stuff other than this particular case. So stay in the fight. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. I really hope people will go back and uh, watch that video because it is so telling and you'll see everything that we're talking about in terms of how calm Jomora was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think in that situation, many of us, myself included, would be <laughs> angry and have our voices raised and be very frustrated. But he Absolutely. Was, he was so calm. Yeah, I was just telling you, I had watched it right before we got started recording. So I was definitely feeling some type of way, heightened anxiety, all those things. They talked about the fact that Joe's coming off of a 12 hour shift. So I was mentioning to you, I know how I would feel if I just got finished working a 12 hour shift. I'd be tired, which means I'd be yes. more irritable, which mm -hmm. means, you know, those defenses are a little bit heightened. But again, it comes down to me also to this idea that we are the ones who always need to be policing our behavior. It was something Joe was doing wrong. You should, you know, remain more calm how could he remain any more calm he was calm throughout the entire scenario until the manager basically said get him out of my office he may steal something so one not only now did I supposedly come here with a fraudulent check now I may steal something off of your desk I mean it was just absurd circumstances to put somebody in who's completely innocent and walking in just to try to cash their paycheck from a hard day of work it was very upsetting Vanessa very upsetting I I know what you mean he um you know, had an account at the bank. He had a job. That check was legitimate. And, you know, a simple phone call to the company. Hey, does this guy work there? Did you pay him today? Is this check for real? Could have just settled it in a matter of minutes. Exactly. Because why'd you go the route of calling the police? That was the legitimate call you made versus the call you could have made to resolve this situation. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, just what we mentioned, you know, that's journalism at its best, shining the light on that and being the voice of someone who in that particular situation did not have a voice. Mm -hmm. And I was encouraged by the things that Nikima said about how there's been follow up. Yeah. With working with the bank and with the bank realizing we have to do better. So, yes, bank do better is the bottom line on all of that. There you go. Um, that's quite an episode for our first episode in 2022. Thank you, Podcast Village, for joining us. Again, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at colorblindpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So here's to a great 2022, and here's to the day when we don't have to talk about some of these issues. Not sure we'll leave, live to see that, but <laughs> I have hope. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Until next time, I'm your host, Vanessa Eccles, along with super producer Ashley Fong. See ya. Bye-bye. <laughs>